Welcome everybody to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. I'm your weekly host, Scott Miller, and today I'm honored to have as our guest the author of the number one New York Times best-selling book, Everything is Figure Outable, Marie Forleo. Welcome to On Leadership. Thank you so much, Scott, for having me on. This is such a pleasure. Hey, it's delighted to see you again. You and I uh, met about three months ago when both of us were part of the um, honored group to be speaking at a mutual friend of ours, Rachel Hollis's Rise Business Event in, um, uh, let's see, where Charleston, right, South Carolina? Yes. Uh, nothing like checking your ego, walking on stage in front of almost 7,000 people. Tell me a bit what it's like for you as you prepare to go onto audiences that big. Oh, you know, I love it. I love connecting with people. And for me, it's all about making sure that I can deliver as much value as possible. I love music and I love dance. So part of my preparation process is always to listen to some good tunes and to move my body. Um, but admittedly, when I was sitting backstage, I heard you and I heard uh, so many other people. And I was just in awe of how talented some speakers are. And uh, it's just, it's a lot of fun. I love being able to connect with people in person. Well, certainly a career highlight. We actually were able to interview Rachel Hollis for this podcast and she crushed it as well too. So big things planned for you today. Um, first, the cover of your book is amazing. I mean, I think it's one of the best covers of any book in the history of printing. The cover of your book is so important. What? Uh, oh my goodness. Thank you, no, Scott. That's and, and, amazing. And, and look around. I know a thing about books, right? I mean, I lead our yes. book strategy in this company. Your book, the book is fantastic. I've read the entire thing. The cover is, of course, phenomenal. Looking pretty good, my friend. Um, what I'd like to do is have you talk a bit about your journey. Because one yes. of the things that I've learned, and you probably too from our friend Rachel Hollis, is that there's no such thing as overnight success, right? It just doesn't, it's, it's an it's a, it's a irrelevant term. Would you take a it's few a minutes- myth. It's a myth. Yeah, for sure. You know, I started my career um, after college on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange on Wall Street, right? And I was just a human who had a lot of energy. So I was pretty clear that I wouldn't do well sitting in an office. I needed to be somewhere where there was a lot of activity. But, you know, Scott, when I got to the floor, I was so grateful to have a job. I'm, I'm one of the first in my family to go to college. I am actually the first in my family to go to college. But after about six months of being there, I started hearing this small voice inside that said, this isn't who you are, Marie. This isn't what you're meant to do. This isn't who you're meant to be in this world. The challenge was that voice didn't tell me what I was supposed to do instead. And while the folks that I worked with at the time, and to be really honest, it was 99.9% .9 men, uh, you know, they were successful when it came to money and earning millions and millions of dollars. But when I had conversations with them, they didn't seem very fulfilled or satisfied with their life. A lot of them felt like they were pining for these two weeks of vacation every year, like that was the only thing they had to look forward to. And that felt a little depressing to me, to be honest. So. One day I was on the floor and uh, I started to feel physically ill. Like I was having a little bit of what I can identify now as a, a panic attack. I was dizzy, I felt nauseated, having trouble breathing. And I said to my boss, hey, I need to run out just to get some air and to get some coffee. Uh, and rather than going to get some coffee, I actually went to a Catholic university, Seton Hall University. So I was kind of trained to look up for some guidance whenever you're in a crisis. I made a beeline to the nearest church and I just started crying my face off because I felt so conflicted. Here I was grateful to have a job, didn't have a trust fund or a backup fund. I was in debt after college, like many of us are, and yet I wanted to quit. And the first clue I got was to call my dad. 
uh, you know, he had worked his butt off to put me through school and I didn't want to disappoint him. And I called him crying and like the ugly cry with the snots coming out and everything, you know, rolling down your face. And my dad interrupted me and he gave me a lesson that I'll never forget. He said, Ray, stop. You're going to be okay. Look, you've been working since you were nine years old. I'm not worried about you putting a roof over your head. Uh, here's the secret to life. You're going to be working for the next 40, 50 years. You have got to find something that you love. And if this job on Wall Street is making you this sick, then you got to quit and you got to do whatever you need to do to go find that thing that you love. So when you show up at work every day, you can really contribute and it's actually going to be joyful. And I will tell you, Scott, that was the permission slip that I needed and really the alignment that I needed to understand my goal was to find some place where I could contribute my gifts and that would actually be joyful. But I had no clue how to do it, to be honest with you. And my dad didn't give me any clues either. That was just the, the end of his advice. So I quit that job and I went on a bit of an odyssey to try and figure out my place in the world. My only clues were that I was highly creative and I also loved business, right? And these two things didn't really match for me. So I was trying to think in my mind, what could I do? What could I do? And the only thought that came to my mind was around magazine publishing. I thought, well, there's the advertising side that has to do with business and money and commerce. And I like that stuff. And then there's the creative side that has to do with the editorial and the stories and the images and the layouts and all that, all those good things. So I uh, hustled and I went to a temp agency and I got a position as an ad sales assistant at Gourmet Magazine, which was part of Condé Nast publication. Got in there, so excited. I'm like, all right, it's a new environment. I really like my boss, this account executive. She was extremely professional, so smart. Um, it was a great place. And uh, six months went by and these same voices came back again. Marie, this isn't who you are. This isn't what you're meant to do. This isn't who you're supposed to be in the world. And I'm starting to panic thinking, what is wrong with me? I am a really hard worker. I want to work. I like to work, but I keep wanting to quit my jobs. So I took a step back and I thought from a different perspective. I said, okay, Wall Street was about a lot of numbers. Ad sales, it's about a lot of numbers. And I also thought to myself, well, I don't really aspire to become my boss, the account executive. And when I looked ahead at the publisher, who was a powerful, incredibly intelligent woman, I also didn't aspire to her job. And I thought, well, if I don't want to climb this corporate ladder, what am I doing wasting their time and mine? So I stepped back and I said, maybe I need to go a bit more on the creative side. Maybe I should be on the editorial side of a magazine. That's got to be it, right? So I went to HR and I said, hey, next time there's an opening on the edit side of any publication, I'd love to go over. Got a position as a fashion uh, assistant for Mademoiselle magazine. And I was like, okay, this has got to be it. I'm going to be working with designers. I'm going to be helping with layouts. I'm going to be going on photo shoots. This is going to be incredible. Got that job, showed up, happy, smiled, working my buns off. And in about six months, those same voices came back. Now I was panicked. I was seriously thinking, do I have a cognitive disorder? What <laughs> is wrong with me? I know I'm a really hard worker, but I keep wanting to quit every job I have. And this is at a time in my life where friends that I had graduated school with, they were starting to you know, get married and get promotions and create real adult lives. And here I am just kind of spinning my wheels. So one day I was at work and I was on the internet and this is 1999, just to put it in context. And I stumbled upon this article about a new profession at the time called coaching. No one had ever heard of it before. Again, we're going way back in the time machine right now. 
And Scott, I remember reading that article and something in me lit up like a Christmas tree. It was like the clouds parted and there were angels and cherubs and trumpets. And it was like, oh, this is what you're meant to do. Yet, I'm from New Jersey. I have a very skeptical, cynical mind in many ways. One part of my brain was saying, what are you talking about? You're 23 years old. Who in their right mind is going to hire a 23-year-old life coach? You haven't even lived life yet. You can't hold down a job. You're in debt. You're a loser. No one's going to want, like the whole stream of thoughts that came through. But I couldn't deny in my bones, something felt different about this than anything before. So on the spot, I signed up for a three-year coach training program. And I started doing my studies and my trainings at night and on the weekends. And I worked at Mademoiselle during the day. Six months later, I got a call from the HR department. They had a promotion for me. It was at Vogue. It was more money. It was more prestige. It was a career path, right? So that was my fork in the road. Do I stay on the safe path and do this thing that everyone, of course, would understand and it's respectable and all these things? Or do I quit and do this weird life coaching thing that doesn't even make sense to some part of my brain, but that feels really right. Even though I don't know how to start a business, I have no clue where I'm going to get the money or the know-how to get all this going. And I'm not even sure that I'll be able to pull this off. Of course, I quit that job. I said no to the promotion and I went back to bartending and waiting tables and figured out how to start a coaching business during the day. And that was over 20 years ago. <laughs> so I'm, I'm condensing this down, but that's what all started up. And it was at the beginning of the world of online business. I remember starting to create email content in terms of an email newsletter before people even knew what that was. I had written an ebook way back in the day when people were like, what? words in a PDF as an ebook, like mind blown. So um, it's been an incredible journey and I'm really grateful to be here. And I, I'm also really happy that I got in at the ground level of just this incredible world of education and media that we're a part of today. I'm delighted you recreated it because it's one of the funniest parts of the book is you kind of sharing unvarnished. What's wrong with me? Why am I not happy? Where's my voice? And it gave, I think it gave permission to the reader to struggle with the same, you know, challenge. You know, you may not know this, but the co-founder of our firm, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, whose book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, has now sold 50 million copies worldwide. He wrote that book when he was 56. Oh, and I, I love it's one of my favorite books ever. Not to interrupt you, but it is one I love it so much. I read it every year, and I dog ear and underline different parts. Well, we're honored. But I reason I mention that because you because there's no such overnight success. He was 56 yes. when he wrote one of the world's most popular books in history. But the reason I mention that is because you share a fairly tender um, assessment of the famous actress uh, Laverne Cox. And the yes. fact that her success was not overnight. We create a little bit of um, her journey, if you would. Oh, absolutely. And to put this in context, and then we'll go right into Laverne. So like when I started that business, right, you know, 23, not knowing what I was doing, I stayed doing side gigs and bartending and cleaning yep. people's toilets and doing every job I could. It was seven years before I had confidence enough emotionally and financially to actually do the business I have now, the beginning version of it full time, just to set that context. Laverne Cox, 
what an amazing, inspiring human being. We talk about her in the Define Your Dream chapter of Everything is Figure Outable because, you know, she started out in Mobile, Alabama, and just went through some of the most challenging, difficult circumstances as a young person, particularly around her gender identity and having teachers and other people say some of the most cruel and damaging things and just fighting her way through that transition, finding her way eventually to New York City, paying attention to this dream that she had about being a performer and navigating all of the different um, prejudice and oppression and people not understanding her, cut to it was 19 years after when she arrived in New York until she finally got that role in Orange is the New Black. And we can look at her today and, and who she is and what she stands for and the power of her platform. It is so incredibly moving. You know, and there's this one slice of Laverne's story that I think is so interesting. So she had been working so hard uh, performing and, and, and going on auditions. And, you know, like many performers and many people in entertainment, my partner is actually an actor. So I know this intimately. You know, they go on audition after audition, after meeting, after meeting, and you don't get a job. And Laverne was at a place where she was really thinking about, do I keep doing this? Do I keep staying on this path? And she actually explored going back to school to get a graduate degree. Um, there's a notion that we talk about in the book, clarity comes from engagement, not thought. Sometimes we find ourselves in these difficult situations in our career, and we don't know whether or not we should continue. But rather than stay up here, what Laverne did was so smart. She got some textbooks and she started preparing to take some graduate exams. And she could feel by the way that she was engaging, she's like, you know what? I don't want to do this. I want to stay on my path. I want to be this performer and this actress and this artist. And it was within a pretty short amount of time after she had that clarity and she wanted to stay on her acting path that the call came in for this Netflix show, which again, yeah. at that time, yeah. Netflix wasn't yeah. the Netflix it was today. And she got the role that would forever change her career. Marie, the title of your book is Everything is Figure Outable. Orient our listening and viewing audience to how that phrase entered your life and, and how it is yes. the premise of the book. So uh, this phrase actually came from my mom. So my mom is this really interesting human being. She is about 5'3". Uh, she's got the tenacity of a bulldog. She looks like June Cleaver and she cusses like a, tr a truck driver. She is just uh, awesome. She's a firecracker and a half. And my mom grew up the daughter of two alcoholic parents uh, in the projects of Newark, New Jersey, and really learned by necessity how to stretch a dollar bill around the block like five times. And one of my favorite memories as a kid in New Jersey with my mom was sitting around the kitchen table on Sundays, clipping coupons. She loved teaching me all the different ways that our family could save money. And she also taught me about the fact that brands would send you these cool things like cooking books or recipes if you saved up your proofs of purchase. Hopefully some of your listeners remember what those things are. And one of my mom's most prized possessions was this little AM FM transistor radio that she got from Tropicana orange juice for free. So it's shaped like an orange. It is orange in color. It has a little red and white straw sticking out of the side. That's the antenna. And my mom's one of those humans who's constantly busy, right? She's always working on something. And as a kid, I knew I could find her somewhere around the house or somewhere around the yard by listening for the sound of that tinny little radio. So Scott, one day I come home from school, walking home, 
and I hear the, the tunes kind of blasting off in the distance. And I approach the house and the sound is coming from a weird orientation. It's coming up from above. And I look up and I see my mom perched precariously on the roof of our two-story house with her little Tropicana orange sitting near her bum. And I look up and I'm like, mom, are you okay? What's going on? Why are you on the roof? What's happening? And she yells down. She's like, great. I'm fine. Don't worry about it. The roof had a leak. I called the roofer. He said it was going to be at least 500 bucks. I said, screw that. I'm doing it myself. That's my mom. Another day, I come home, right? And I hear the sound of the radio, but it's coming from the back of the house. So I follow that sound. I push open the bathroom door and I see my mom sitting on the floor of the bathroom. There's like pipes sticking out of the wall. There's dust particles. It looked like an explosion went off. And I was like, mom, are you okay? What happened? And she's like, Rhea, I'm fine. She's like, the tiles had some cracks in it and I didn't want the bathroom to get moldy. So I'm retiling the entire bathroom. Now, Scott, you got to get, this is the 80s when I grew up, right? So this is a pre-internet, pre-YouTube, pre-Google kind of world. I never knew what I could find her doing, but I always knew I could find her by listening for the sound of that radio. So one fall day, I come home from school and it's late. It's dark out. It's already eerie. I approach my house. The entire house is dark and it's silent, which for an Italian-American home, this is not a good sign. <laughs> I walk inside and I had that pit in my stomach. You know, that, that instinct you have yeah, when something's yeah. not right. And I'm wondering like, where is my mom and where's the sound of the radio? And I started to get a little scared. All of a sudden I heard these clicks and clacks. They were coming from the kitchen and I followed that sound and I see my mom hunched over the kitchen table, which looked like an operating room. She had screwdrivers on one side, electrical tape on the other. And then in about a dozen pieces, was a completely dismantled Tropicana orange radio. And I was like, just, are you okay? That's your favorite thing. What happened, mom? Did it break? And she's like, Ray, oh, I'm fine. The, the antenna was off and the tuner wasn't working. So I'm fixing it. So I stood there, Scott, and I watched my mom work her magic, which I always did. And then I finally thought to ask the question I should have always asked, which was this. Hey, mom, how do you know how to do so many different things that you've never done before but nobody's showing you how to do it. She put down her screwdriver, Scott. She cocked her head to the side and she's like, Ray, what are you talking about? Nothing in life is that complicated. If you roll up your sleeves, you get in there and you do it. Everything is figure outable. And I just stood there like that phrase washed over me and it planted a seed so deep in my soul. And ever since that moment, I am not lying to you. It is the single most powerful phrase that has driven my life from extract, like extracting myself from a physically abusive relationship when I was in high school, from getting into classes that I really need to get into in college, including finding work-study programs to help me actually pay for school. Every job I've had, New York Stock Exchange, um, bartending, waiting tables. I had one gig selling glow sticks in dance clubs in New York City, which was one of the funnest things I've ever done. To Part of my career was becoming one of the world's first Nike elite dance athletes and master trainers to building the business that I have today, to saving my relationships, to hiring people, to solving management and leadership issues. The phrase is universal and limitless in its application. You can use it for anything. You got to fix you know, a, a leaky sink, everything is figure outable. Your tires flat, everything is figure outable. Your CFO leaves, everything is figure outable. The tech just hits the wall, everything crashes, and you all have to fit, everything is figure outable. So that's where the phrase comes from. And the reason I wanted to write the book is because I haven't found one problem yet that people can't use it to solve. 
Well, first of all, you're the best storyteller I've ever met in my life. Oh. I can listen to you tell stories. <laughs> I feel like I know your mother. And second of all, you know, the concept I think is, it, it may seem so uh, simple on the surface, yes. but it's so empowering because, you know, I've, I've, I've not been a slack. I've done some things in my life and I like to think yes. that I can figure things out. And as I read your book, I wasn't putting it to the test. I was thinking I'm facing some challenges in my own life, in my career and, and uh, my future financial planning. And I was thinking sort of like, so what would Marie tell me to do? I said, how am I going to figure this out? Yes. And so the gift, the book is a gift. I, I want to move on to some other key concepts in it quickly. You talk to and speak about the power of belief and that the yes. role that our beliefs have in our thoughts and our behaviors and our results. Speak to how that's been so um, influential in your own right, in your own life and writing the book. Absolutely. So uh, belief is where it all begins and ends, right? So there's the old Henry Ford quote. It's a cliche, but it's true. Whether you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right. And so I think about beliefs as really the underpinning. They're what begins our thought processes, what's, which influences our feelings, which influences our actions, and therefore influences our results, right? It's like this circle. And if we can start to understand whether or not we believe something is possible, that is the beginning of everything everything for us as humans. And most of us, we don't consciously choose our beliefs, do we? I know at Franklin Covey, obviously, we talk a lot about paradigms, right? right? And a lot of this is connected. You know, if, if you're thinking about the world through the belief structure that you have absorbed from your family or from society, and it's limited in any nature, that is obviously going to influence not only what you think is possible, but how your life is going to be shaped. And if you're able to start to understand this truth, that our beliefs are actually a choice and choices can be changed. You can adopt a new paradigm. You can start to see through a new lens. You will have new thoughts, which include new feelings, which include new actions, which includes new results. You know, and I want to, Scott, if we're able to really fast for anyone listening who may be skeptical of everything as figure outable, even as it relates to beliefs, I just want to give three quick rules, if I can, of the figure outable philosophy. Because ever if someone's listening, going like, this is a fun story, but I don't believe this woman. I can name X, Y, and Z that are not figure outable. I would love to give that to them just so their minds aren't over there. Would that be okay? Please. Okay. So the three rules of the figure outable philosophy and the way this came about was this. When I was starting to write the book, um, I was out to friends with some brunch and one of my friends brought her eight-year-old son. And they said, Marie, what are you working on? I said, Every, this book called Everything is Figure Outable. And the eight-year-old's like, no, it's not. Nope. Everything's not figure outable. And I was like, oh, this is awesome because I'm going to have to defend this concept in interviews and out into the world. I said, tell me more, young man. What do you think is not figure outable? And he said, well, we human beings can't grow working wings out of our back and fly away. And I said, well, that may be true at this moment, but have you heard of CRISPR? And he's like, no, what's that? I said, Google it because it may be coming in about 20 years. But right now, you do know that we human beings can indeed fly. And he was like, Oh, yeah, that's right. He said, well, what about this one? I can't bring my dog back from the dead, the one that died a couple years ago that I miss. And I said, thinking to myself, first of all, that's some pet cemetery-ish right there. I didn't say that to him. But I said, look, you do know that scientists are working on cryogenics and people have been cloning their dogs. And he was like, oh, yeah, you're right. So conversations like that inspired me to create a set of rules, which helps us because it gives us a mental container through which we can use this philosophy to create real change in our businesses and our lives. And that's the intended purpose. Rule number one, all problems or dreams are figure outable. Rule number two, if a problem isn't figure outable, it isn't a problem. It's a fact of life or a law of nature like death, 
gravity, sometimes taxes. Rule number three, and this is the big one, Scott, you may not care enough to solve this particular problem or reach this particular dream, and that's okay. Find something you do care deeply about and go back to rule number one. So that handles about 90% of the skepticism around that idea. So as we go into beliefs or thinking about what we ourselves want to figure out, one of the primary things that we have to get clear on is first, that we believe that it's possible, but second, that we care enough to devote the time and the effort and the energy it's gonna take over the long term to eventually figure it out. So nicely said. Build on that and talk about the connection between can't and won't. Yes. So the moment that our minds and our hearts are open to this possibility, well, everything is figureoutable, then we must confront, well, what stops us? What gets in our way? And what I found, while there can be a million things, the biggest ones that get in our way are our excuses, right? These nasty little lies that we all can tell ourselves from time to time. I tell myself, you tell yourself, probably everyone listening has told themselves some excuses from time to time. The three most common buckets of excuses fall into this. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I don't have the know-how. Now, we attack all of these in the book so that we can really live an excuse-free life. And the most effective way that I've found to start to unravel the lies that we tell ourselves is looking at the difference between two four-letter words, can't versus won't. So how many times have one of us said this to ourselves? You know, I can't get up and start writing my book. I just don't have the time. I, I can't get up any earlier than I can or than I do right now. Or you know what? I just don't have the money to take that new leadership class. I really want to advance in my career, but I don't have the resources right now. Or I would really love to start that nonprofit, but I don't know how. I've never done anything like that before. How am I supposed to make this happen? Here's the truth, Scott. 99.9% .9 of the time, not 100, but 99.9% .9 of the time, when we human beings say the word can't, can't is really a euphemism for won't. And what does won't mean? Won't means we don't want to. Won't means we're not willing to. We don't want to work that hard or be that inconvenienced or change around our other priorities or take the risk or put ourselves out there or possibly fail. Now, before people kind of push back and go, girl, you do not know my life. Don't tell me. I'm telling you my can't is a can't. Just think if this is true, how might this change your life? And I think everyone listening, and I'll say for myself, there have been times in my life when I've said, oh, I can't do X, Y, or Z because I don't have the time or the money or the know-how. And then something came along that was so important to me, that was so important to my heart that somehow I busted through those excuses. I made the time. I found the money. I worked my tail off to figure out the how to make that thing happen. Often, we usually see these examples around our relationships around people that we love or our family or something in our career that is just, you know, it's, you have to make it happen. And once you have that example for yourself, that gives you all the proof that you need for how powerful you are. So I would invite everyone listening just as an experiment, the next time that they hear themselves either aloud or to themselves saying the word can't, try on won't instead and see if that's not more true. And here's the deal. Saying that you don't want to do something right now, saying that it's a won't, like I don't want to get up early to write this book. That's not my priority. Sleep is more important. Or I don't want to find the money for that class because my money is better served somewhere else right now. That doesn't make you bad or lazy. You know what it makes you? It makes you honest. And here's why those two little words are so important. 
When we human beings use the word can't, we put ourselves in a position of feeling disempowered, as though we have no agency in our life. We have no control. People are doing things to us, and we don't have a power to change it. I don't know anyone who's their best in terms of leadership or impact from a powerless place. Now, on the flip side, when you use a word like I won't or I don't want to or that's not my priority right now, you feel in control. You are at choice. You feel empowered. And from that space, miracles can happen. Marie, Dr. Covey would have loved you. He passed about uh, not quite eight years ago. Uh, I was fortunate to have tutored under him for 15 of my tw almost 24 years here. And he popularized a term that we use here a lot called your R and your I. Use your R and your I, the letter R and the letter I. And it stands for resourcefulness and initiative. And it's had a profound impact on my life and my career, my success, by just figuring out how am I going to use my R and uh, my I. I wish you had, could have met him. He would have liked you a lot. <laughs> Me too. Well, I continue to read his books and I feel like I get a chance to just absorb and to sit in some of his wisdom and energy through, thank goodness, you know, the fact that we have his words and so many yeah. of his teachings that we can yeah. still take part in. I think my favorite part of the book, whereas when you talked about there's two kinds of people in the world, those with reasons and those with results. And I found it very motivating, very validating, very um Galvanizing. Uh, galvanizing. Thank you. Uh, speak yes. to that, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And I do want to put this in context, right? I do not believe as a human being, like there are some gray zones we have to talk about. And I like to put this in context because as someone who's involved in business development and leadership and personal development, you know, um, there are folks in other parts of the world, let's say the developing world who, you know what, there's a lot of obstacles put in their way. For example, like when I think about women who have to walk eight, 10 hours a day to go get water for their family, and that water is filled with bacteria and diseases that makes their family sick. Like, you know what I mean? This whole idea of there's two kinds of people in the world. There are exceptions to this. But for most people listening, I believe for this podcast right now, this is a great way to just get yourself excited and motivated and see which side you want to be on for yourself for the day. So two types of people in the world, those who have reasons and those who have results. If there's anything in your life that you really want to change or you really want to transform, just say that to yourself. Say, who do I want to be today? Do I want to be the person who put in the effort or do I want to be the person to say, oh, you know what? I needed to scroll my phone or the traffic got to me or X, Y, or Z got in my way. You know, and this isn't about beating yourself up. This isn't about being harsh, but it's about really uh, check yourself before you wreck yourself moment. Are you going to be one of those people who's going to take a stand for what's most important to you and to your family and to your business and to your mission and say, no matter what it takes, I'm going to put in the effort today. Or do I want to be the person who puts her head on the pillow at night to say, well, I didn't give my best today. I didn't even give it a shot because of all these reasons that got in my way. Marie, to your point, we both have a mutual friend of someone who's in that kind of exception area, Dr. Tara yes. Trent, right? I think yes. uh, known as Oprah's favorite all-time guest. I was privileged to interview her here on, on leadership. And you, you dedicate almost four pages in your book to her story. Speak a little bit about to those who maybe haven't seen the interview or don't know Dr. Trent, yep. uh, what her journey was like. Oh, 100%. So again, one of the bits of skepticism or pushback that could come up, especially around excuses, it's like, again, 
who are you to tell me about my life and my circumstances and the can't versus the won't? And I really don't have the time. And I think uh, for me as a human, I always find it really inspiring to find people who just transcend the odds, who are able to tap into their personal power to rise above the challenges and the circumstances that they were born into. And Dr. Tara Trent is, is probably one of my greatest heroes. And, you know, here we have this woman who was born into a culture that denied her education. She was born into a village where there wasn't even access for her because she's a woman to textbooks, to education. You know, she wanted to learn so bad, Scott. She wanted to learn to read and write. That was the dream that was in her heart. And she wanted it so bad that she actually borrowed her brother's textbooks. And part of her family, what they did, they were cattle herders. And so when Terai was a young woman and she was in uh, the field, what she did was she actually went and gathered leaves, big, beautiful leaves that were from uh, her country. And she used the stem of one leaf as a pencil and the face of another leaf as her paper. And she would trace the letters of the alphabet. That's how she taught herself to read and write. Because again, in her family, it's like girls don't deserve to get educated. And, you know, she was married off for, I believe, the price of a cow before she was 18. By the time she was 18, she had a husband who physically abused her. She had, I believe, four kids. So the fact that she came from those circumstances and then she went on to just have an interaction with a U.S. aid worker named Joe Luck. And this aid worker asked uh, Terai and a bunch of women in the village, you know, what are your greatest dreams? And no one had ever asked Terai before what her dreams were. She didn't even know that she could have dreams. And she started to get clear for herself about what she wanted, which was to get an education in America, to get a bachelor's degree, to get a master's degree, and to get a PhD, which again, based on where she came from, that sounded nearly impossible. But Terai wrote down her dreams. She worked her buns off. She started to save money. The community started to support her and not to give away the whole story, but eventually she ticked off every single one of those goals. And she is forever now known as Dr. Terrorai Trent. And the obstacles she had to overcome, her resourcefulness, what she had to navigate in order to bring those dreams to life, uh, I could bring myself to tears just thinking about her. And her and I have become friends um, since then. And I saw her just a few months ago. And she is continuing to be a champion for education so that everyone, no matter who they are or where they are born, has the opportunity to have that education to build a better life, not just for themselves, but for their communities. In fact, I think she's a great uh, manifestation of everything is figure outable, right? Yes, I love she the, has. Yes, go for it. Go for it. Yeah, I love the quote that you uh, share from her in your book. I'm going to read it verbatim. Yes. She says, and this woman is from Zimbabwe, right? I mean, raised in, like you said, abject poverty in this generational patriarchy of oppression of women and comes yes. to the U.S. with these four kids and no money and a small scholarship and then loses it and then actually yes. regains it. It's just it's an amazing journey. She says in your book, who am I to complain that I'm feeding my children from trash cans? Where I come from, millions of homeless kids are eating food from trash cans that no one is washing. At least in America, the trash can, someone washes it. I mean, it's prophetic, right? It's unrela- unrelatable, but prophetic. Yeah, I, I, you read that and it speaks to 
her attitude, her perspective, her ability to keep tapping into this power that she has inside to put everything into a frame where she finds herself in a place of gratitude and finds herself in a place of look what I have and how can I build on it? Again, her story is phenomenal. We've interviewed her as well. And I hope anyone listening who is slightly intrigued by that will go watch your interview and ours because she is a force of nature. Hey, Marie, our time is tight and I wanna save some time to talk about what you're doing next. Before I yes. go there, you mentioned your book, the exponential uh, value of writing your goals down and what the multiplicative power that is. Talk a bit about, and maybe reinforce the thing we all know, but few yeah. of us do, the power of writing right. your goals. So one of the simplest things any of us can do to help ourselves figure something out. So for everyone listening right now, right, there's something you want to figure out, whether it has to do with your career or your team or your personal life or anything that's going on. And um, here's something really simple that you can do to increase your odds of success by up to 42%. And it's this simple. It's write your goals down. You know, there was a study done by Dr. Gail Matthews at the University of um, uh, Dominican University of California. And she actually did a study about this. And she looked across all these different humans, all different walks of life, um, age ranges from like people in their, in their teens to all the way up in the 60s and 70s. And they just found this. If you simply write your goals down, you are 42% more likely to reach them. And I would encourage people, don't just write it down once and then stick it in the journal and then don't look at it until the next year. I actually write my top goal down, Scott, every day. 15 times. Wow. It helps me keep first things first to use a Stephen Covey phrase, yeah. right? First things first, you see it, it helps you focus, it makes common sense. But I also think there's some subconscious power in terms of writing. I don't think that it works as well, and this is just me and my own perspective, if we do it electronically. I do think that there is some magic yeah. and there's actually some science behind yeah. it too about how we learn better if you actually write it down by hand. I'm going to write my goals down 15 times a day now because it's working for you. And I it's fun. It was part of New what York I did. I, we had this dream to become a number one New York Times bestseller. And that was part of, I mean, we did a lot of things, of course. But yeah. uh, again, keeping your top goal top yeah. of mind. So Marie, I discovered you from your book, but you've, uh, you haven't burst on the scene. Uh, I, I've learned a lot about this idea of Marie TV. Talk a bit about what that is. Yeah. So, you know, it was over a decade ago. I remember actually it, it was inspired because I got a new puppy and I was blogging for a while. I had been in business for over a decade, creating content weekly. And I just found it was a lot easier to answer questions and to talk with people just turning on my webcam. So I started answering questions and developing video content over a decade ago. And the show has grown from me just looking into a webcam, which is awesome, to having a full on production. So we've got hundreds and hundreds of free episodes designed to help people create a life uh, and business that they love. And we cover all kinds of topics from creativity to leadership to small business success to personal development and mindset, um, all kinds of things. We really have a good time and interview people as well. So you can go to um, basically marieforleo.com and there's um, hundreds of episodes and you'll also hear them on the Marie Forleo podcast wherever you download podcasts. It's just a great way to connect with people and to share the best ideas I can find and the best practices and tools and habits that are working for me. So I'm going to guess you're not done. I'm going to I oh. suspect there's some things. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to take a nap. You know, after <laughs> we just get wrap up, I'm just going to check out. No, <laughs> uh, I'm guessing you're not done offering value to everyone. What's next in your world? 
Yeah. So there's a lot of things. Um, so for me, I'm actually working on a, a new project right now that is all around helping people reclaim their time. I think one of the biggest things I've learned, especially getting this book out there, is how overstretched and overcommitted yeah. and overwhelmed people feel. And um, so I'm working on a project right now that's all around time and helping people reclaim their power in that area. And then I'm also starting to lay the tracks to the next books. Uh, and those will be really fun. And uh, yeah, so that was probably going to be around the money zone because I really, I love money. I love talking about it. It's a piece of all of our lives. And I feel like we've got a lot of mistaken notions about that particular topic that once we heal them, we can do a lot of good. Marie, I'm honored you joined us. I'm delighted that I was able to discover you and then meet you through Rachel Hollis. Your book is a gift. Uh, I'm going to start writing my goals down today 15 times a day. Do and it. It's so fun. It takes five minutes and it's if awesome. Even, if even. Uh, such a delight you joined us. Thank you for your time today. We'll have you back on for your next bestseller. Thank you so much, Scott. A pleasure to be here. Thank you, Marie. And thank you for joining us. Fascinating conversation. Take your goals. Today, less than a minute, I think. Write it down 15 times. Marie writes the book. There's a 42% higher chance that your goals will come into action if you write them down. Thank you for joining us. If you're not subscribing to On Leadership, visit franklincovey.com. Click on the podcast button. Subscribe your friends and also visit mariefolio.com and follow her on Marie TV and her next projects as well. And we'll see you back here next week for On Leadership.